Hello, and welcome to episode nine of the Policy Agenda podcast. I am EJ Fagan. Today, I am joined by my co-host, Christine Bird. Good morning. And three authors of, uh, of a book we're going to talk about. Uh, those three authors are Brian Jones. Hey, EJ. Hey, Christine. And also a professor of government at the University of Texas, Sean Theriault. Hi. And a soon-to-be assistant professor at Florida State University, Department of Political Science, Michelle Wyman. Hello, EJ. Hello, Christine. Thank you guys for, for joining us. Uh, I, this is a book that has been a long time coming. We've talked about it on the podcast, kind of on the side a little bit. Um, uh, I think, you know, Christine and I have been, have been watching you guys write this book for years. Uh, the book is titled The Great Broadening, How the Vast Expansion of, policy, of the Policymaking Agenda Transformed American Politics. It's a big title. It's a big book. Um, Michelle, I'm wondering, can you explain to us the overall argument you guys are making? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what we're doing is we're documenting this vast expansion of the national policymaking agenda and essentially all of its effects downstream. And so when we talk about the national policymaking agenda, what we're actually talking about there are the number of issues that the federal government is addressing at any one point in time. And one of the things that we find is that there's this kind of this incremental expansion of that agenda. Government is addressing more and more discrete issues. And it ends in a massive peak at right around uh, 1979, where they're addressing more issues right at the federal level than they ever have been at any other point in uh, the history of the uh, of the nation. And we think, right, that there are a whole lot of interesting uh, explanations for the cost causes of that expansion, which we address in this book, and then a whole lot of consequences of that expansion, including things like the proliferation of the interest group um, network and the um, rise of polarization in Congress and, um, and certainly the thickening of government, as in them getting more involved in these issues, passing more laws within these issues over time. And so the book is, is focused on documenting uh, this great broadening. And so the, the book is, is aptly named, right, for the exact um, phenomenon that we are describing throughout. Uh, so I think that's a, a general statement of, of what the book is about. My co-authors might have some more specific uh, things to add to that. No, I would add one thing. That is, we've also explored the causes of this great mm-hmm. broadening, this burst of activity that took place from the late 50s to the late 70s, uh, and found some uh, surprising things. The standard suspects that political scientists always use are definitely involved. And I mean things like party competition, party control, interest groups, um, things like that, elections. Um, and, and but what we found is a uh, a very important role for um, a wave of social movements that just kept happening, hitting the system over and over again, and are we think quite involved in this great broadening process. So I like to so let's start. We've started now talking about the, about the causes. So Sean, I'm wondering if you can give me a little more information on. What actually is happening? So we've got three. I'm, I'm thinking about three parts in this first segment. So we've got some. We've just talked talk a little bit about the causes, and we can get back to that if we want. Um, about what actually happened, and then eventually the implications. So what what's what what is the great broadening more specifically? So the great broadening is is the scope of the federal uh, agenda addressed by the American political institutions. So it's the 
policy area by policy area incremental growth in the amount of uh, issues that the federal government is considering. And we're talking about everything from congressional hearings and bill introductions to Supreme Court opinions to uh, bureaucratic decision making. And so it's it's the broad scope uh, of the uh, of of the, the the of the policy areas that the American political institutions are addressing. So, um, how do you make that argument? So, what data do you do you bring to to uh, show us that the the scope of broaden, uh, of of government is broadening? Right. So, of course, the policy agenda project data. So, we're talking about twenty major topic codes, two hundred and twenty some odd subtopic codes, and and we're looking at at all sorts of different actions that the the federal government takes on a regular basis. So, starting at the very beginning, uh, we're looking at bill introductions. So, uh, each bill that's introduced into Congress is coded according to this scheme, and then we're looking at congressional hearings, and then we're looking at roll call votes, and then we're looking at public laws, and then we're looking at Supreme Court opinions, and we're looking at uh, party platforms um, from the from the presidential nominating conventions. Uh, we're looking at bureaucratic decision making. Um, Every data set we have. And, I mean, <laughs> Pretty much. We're throwing everything at, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the barn wall. And, and in, in part, that's why uh, we became so convinced of our argument, because no matter what data set we looked at, we saw these same basic trends repeating themselves. And so I mean, initially, we might not have been so, uh, so firm in our beliefs. But when you start looking at the ninth data set and the tenth data set and the eleventh data set, and it's following this pattern that we had come to expect, we became convinced. And there are two different patterns, basically, and one's uh, an arc, and we've sort of laid that out. Uh, we got more and more issues that were addressed uh, early in the period, up to 1979, 78, 79, where the peak was. And then things went back down there after that and ending the end of the period of study, which is in the early 2000s. Uh, so things like, and, and there, there are signature issue, signature data sets that can pick up the arc. Things like lawmaking hearings, that is, how many hearings, how many issues are addressed in hearings about laws. That makes a beautiful arc. But there's a second pattern, too, and it's just as important because we don't get this pushback, this loss of the number of issues addressed. It plateaus. These issues plateau. Signature uh, data set, oversight hearings, because you've built a big government in this very short period of time, a much broader government, not necessarily a, a, a government that spends more, but it gets more involved in civic life, plateaus out, doesn't go down. Why doesn't it go down? Because we are not removing government from those issues. Rather, the party competition has moved on to exploit those issues to talk about contracting versus government provision and so forth. The, the, the domain of conflict actually adjusted to these changes. And so, Michelle, we, we, we see these two trends. I wonder if you can explain a little bit about what, what, is, what is the actual data that you're, you are observing when, when Brian or, or Sean says that, said that you have this expansion of issues. Absolutely. So I think that uh, the data set we rely on most heavily, right, throughout the book to demonstrate, right, this arc, this um, horseshoe shape for issues is the hearings data set, which we think of as um, the agenda setting, right, function of Congress. So if Congress is considering uh, getting into a new issue area, one of the first things that they're going to do, one of the first actual manifestations of this on their agenda is, is measured in whether or not they hold a hearing on it. And so what you see is that as, they, um, as Congress 
adds incrementally new issues in their hearing agenda, you get this um, this peak, right, again, in the late 1970s, and then the hearing agenda drops off, right? They stop talking about the same scope of issues, right? They're talking about slightly fewer issues. Um, and yet this is in contrast to something like the law series. So once Congress has legislated, right, actually passed law in any one of these issue areas, even though they can potentially repeal, right, these underlying laws into the future, what we actually see instead is, although they might not be talking about the issue in hearings anymore, right, they are still incrementally passing laws in those areas, which is what accounts for there being a plateau. There's no actually bending back of the curve to create the same type of horseshoe over time that you have in hearings, right? So instead with the lawmaking agenda, that just continues essentially into perpetuity. So once government gets into an issue, it very rarely gets out of it in the lawmaking agenda, even if it may not be actively talking about it in the agenda setting, right? The hearing um, series. Does that make sense? It does. So there's an order of operations, you're you're saying. Absolutely. It's the logical order, right? So you have First, the government starts to talk about it, and and there there starts to be a a process there. Then government encodes that into law, and then after the law is encoded, there are things that you see things like Supreme Court cases and the interscript system. Absolutely, and there are two different patterns that characterize um, those two different parts of the the policymaking process. Right. So that earlier part of the process tends to be characterized by that arc pattern, whereas the later part of the process, once you actually have the codification of law or right, the um, the uh, passing of rules. Right. Not passing. Right. But the codification of rules in the Federal Register by the federal bureaucracy, then you have right, a plateau pattern right, where they're not actually getting out of those issues once they're into it in the actual codification of law or regulatory um, rules. One fascinating thing about, just to elaborate on, on Michelle's point, uh, the if you look at lawmaking hearings, they're not considering now as many different topics as they did in 1979. It's gone down. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the pages of law that are that address issues stays high. That is, they're addressing in the number of pages uh, of enactment uh, the same number of issues, this large number of issues, it plateaus. Why is that? Because laws have expanded in their scope. That is, there are more topics uh, incorporated, and Michelle's the expert here uh, because of her work in her dissertation. And since it, it, it expanded in these areas by, for example, adding more titles to laws to cover all the new topics that are put in here. One reason for that is you can't address one issue area without addressing another issue area. There's this complexity of issues that's emerged out of this big government uh, operation, this, this expanding of, of, of scope of government. For example, if you're going to pass an ag law, you're going to have to address the environmental consequences of that ag and vice versa. So it, it might be helpful here to differentiate two different types of dynamics that we're talking about. The first one is this broadening, right? This is what gives title to the book. So it's the scope of the government. And then the second thing that we're talking about is the thickening. So once uh, government broadens into particular policy areas, then the law starts becoming much thicker. Um, they they pay, pass many more kind of uh, titles in it and lots of different provisions. Um, but, but first comes the broadening and then the thickening. And I think the literature would suggest, w- would talk a whole lot about the thickening. And so one of the big contributions I think this book offers is that, no, we also have to consider the scope of the policies that the federal government's considering, not just that the federal government's doing more. Mm-hmm. 
Now, Sean, uh, since we're talking about implications, I want to move on to talk a little bit about how this transformed politics. So 1979 is an interesting year. Or, or an interesting, the late 70s are interesting, not just because we have the end of the Great Broadening and a fairly stark end of the Great Broadening you guys show, um, but polarization starts to kick off. So does does the Great Broadening have a transformational effect on U.S. politics? Yeah, so it does have a transformational effect, and and, and maybe I'll, ju- I'll I'll step back a little bit and, and talk about how I came to be involved in this project because I think it's a fun story. <laughs> so Michelle and Brian had been working on this paper for a while, and the paper was getting bigger and longer and thicker and and broader and broader. <laughs> And they're, they're submitting it to journals and right, they're trying to tackle a whole lot in a single paper. And so they're trying to figure out what to do with it. And so they, they asked me to take a look at it. And so I read the paper and, I, of course, lots of really interesting ideas. And, and I go back to them and I say, this is a great paper. I like what your argument is. And I think that you're, you're right on track. I was like, but you're missing the biggest thing about this. And they said, well, what's the biggest thing about it? I was like, party polarization. And Brian leans back in his chair and he says, that's exactly what we wanted you to say. How would you like to become a co-author? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right, we're no longer talking about an article, are we? We're talking about a book. And Brian's like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Michelle and I had already talked about that. And um, we, were, we were running on to these fascinating findings about polarization. It looks like there was not any before the top of the Great Broadening. And after that, it took off. And uh, I had looked at some of these issues by looking at Southern versus non-Southern Rep, rep, Republicans to see if it had anything to do with, with uh, region. It didn't. And I said, I can't go any further with this. I know a guy that wrote a book about this, and he's my <laughs> colleague, and we teach together. <laughs> All right. So the, the, the particular argument that we're making about polarization is that during the Great Broadening, both the Democrats and the Republicans, and we're a little bit ambivalent, what, ambivalent whether or not it's explicit or implicit, but there's this deal um, that they have that the Democrats are going to broaden the federal government in certain ways, things that they really care about, and the Republicans are going to focus on on their issues. And, and the Democrats say, that's fine. Republicans, you focus on your issues. We'll focus on our issues. And lo and behold, the government starts year after year, Congress after Congress, law after law starts broadening in all sorts of different ways. And then we get to the 1970s and, and Republicans are looking around and being like, wow, the federal government has encroached in so many different ways. And at about that exact same time, we have a particular person entering the House of Representatives by the name of Newt Gingrich, who in his very first Congress starts reorienting the Republican Party party and, and, and arguing that the Republican Party has to now become a distinct voice inside uh, the Capitol. And so he's trying to make the parties become more confrontational, uh, more, uh, less of that go along to get along of Bob Michael, the, the Republican leader up until that point. Um, and so uh, it's an explicit strategy of Gingrich to to push back on this. And, 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 and Brian uh, does, does a really nice job, I think, in the book of, of describing how it is that Gingrich uses some of this intellectual thought that had been percolating since the 1950s and 60s and utilizing it, recognizing the moment, and then pushing uh, this this more confrontational approach uh, the Republican Party takes towards the, d- the Democratic leadership in, inside the Capitol. So is polarization caused by the Great Broadening or... Is it incidental, or is it, or is it one small piece of polarization? Um, so I, th- right? I mean, I have a book that that doesn't include a whole lot about the Great Broadening, and I made pretty broad <laughs> arguments about how it is that party polarization happens. But I would say that this is a pretty important piece. Um, and I think the nice thing about uh, what what I argue in the Great Broadening and, and party polarization in Congress is the argument is. I mean, I wouldn't say that they feed on each other, but there's a consistency there. Um, so uh, right, part of the party polarization in Congress book 
is that is that uh, a lot of the polarization happens as a consequence of procedures, and there's no doubt that that happens. But but what the great broadening does is provide the conditions under which uh, Newt Gingrich is is able to uh, inflict more of the confrontational nature of the party system inside. Uh, let me, let me the, make, oh, please go ahead, Brian. Okay, um, I want to make uh, quote something from the great E. E. Schatzneider. He said. Uh, politic policies make politics. And we've shown that in spades in the Great Browning. That is, the policies themselves had feedback effects. That is, uh, the, the uh, outside of the uh, inside of uh, the Beltway, you got these reactions to the policy, including Gingrich's entrepreneurship to push back on this. And downstream effects took place because of this. That includes things like the thickening of laws, the response to the interest group system, interest groups built because the policies were there. They decided either to take advantage of them in what one of my students called the honeypot theory from uh, from uh, uh, Pooh's work in <laughs> Christopher and Pooh. <laughs> Go for where the honey is, find the honey. Uh, or they're mad about it and want to push back and, and limit the scope of government. That would be Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> yes. Only Pooh I know. <laughs> Michelle, please say something. Uh, so I was going to add to that, right? We, we certainly didn't originate this, but um, but borrowed it from Pearson and I believe others, right? So this idea of policy is terrain, right? So uh, Jim Wilson. Was it Wilson? Okay, Wilson and um, Pearson, yes. So it's a, uh, it's a nonpartisan from the left, from the right. <laughs> Uh, so when Sean says, right, he's got this, this entire other book, right, talking about causes of polarization, right, outside of what's going on kind of in the policy system, I think that we could all agree, though, that what is going on outside of outside of the system or actually is generated from within it is is the terrain upon which all of these political battles are being fought is changing, right? And the, the actors within the system are actively changing it over time, um, culminating, of course, in, in a much larger, more active, broadened federal government government, then I think um, the conservatives found themselves surprised, right, to have uh, to have helped create. Um, but yeah, so we find that particular metaphor helpful um, in talking about uh, causes of polarization. I think we've been circling around something that I, I wanted to ask about at the very beginning, but we, we've alluded to it and it, we're at a, a point where I think we can talk about it now. But the, you know, the expansion of the federal government is at the detriment to the powers of the state government. So there's this story of federalism here that I'd like to hear you guys explain more about. You you talk about it in the the conservative backlash chapter, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this the scope of just the federal government versus powers uh, traditionally let, left to the states. Thanks, Christine. That's a good mm-hmm. question. <clears throat> we have uh, it, it remains to be explored. However, I'd note a couple of things. Uh, much of the programs that were instituted in the Great Broadening Period actually enhanced uh, state power by giving them all sorts of resources in lots of different areas. Uh, now, there was a matching uh, set of proposals and there was some uh, requirements. But a lot of the battle in the Nixon administration was not over limited government, but rather how much power you're going to delegate to the states. Um, and... Nixon administration uh, did things like try to change some of the social programs to transfer programs, turn them over to the states and make them transfer programs, still a part of the Republican agenda. So the states were both weakened and empowered in, in this process because so many more resources came to the states that were more than happy to use. And, of course, 
the way the international relations uh, scholars think about donor nations in terms of aid and recipient nations. Recipient nations want to get free of the of the of the strings attached to the uh, from the donors, and the same is true about the federal government. So it changed the nature of conflict. The terrain, as Michelle said, changed. The fight over what we're fighting about changed. <laughs> This, this might be a helpful uh, interjection, too. Um, and, and this book really ha- has developed and had various iterations. Um, and one of the most valuable, I think, that the three of us would say was when we were able to present this book at a week-long conference at Duke University. And I would say that the manuscript that we provided them really didn't talk much about federalism. We talked about government action versus private action. Um, and it was only over the course of those conversations that we realized that there's this other dynamic that was happening that we had given short shrift to in the book. And so... Uh, shortly after the Duke conference, I think that we did some search, find, and replaces, uh, where we talked about uh, government <laughs> action, and we started talking about federal government action and trying to differentiate it from from state action and and, and also from uh, private individuals. There's something in the just the course of history that whenever this book was first presented to me in in one of the courses of our PAP talks, the Commerce Clause doctrine follows this. So the Supreme Court says, you know, the government can do pretty much anything through the Commerce Clause, and which seems to really give rise as as one point to the Great Broadening, which is definitely a question. Good of point. And it, it'd be something interesting to explore. Uh, uh, how did that empower? Uh, it certainly was critical in the civil rights area and lots of other areas, too. Um, by, by the way, the Supreme Court, uh, <clears throat> number of issues the Supreme Court address addresses during this period of time makes an arc. And um, and that goes along with the number of cases the Supreme Court is taking. That look, that's an arc too. And Justice Scalia uh, once was asked about, "Are you guys just lazier now than you used to be?" And he said, "No, our mm-hmm. job is to interpret statutes." And they passed a lot of statutes back in that period when when we were so active. Well, that's the great broadening reflected in the court. Nothing more, nothing less. Michelle, you have. Uh a piece in this book that I, I think you wrote this part about the, the CERT advancement in denial. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, sure, briefly. Um, so the Supreme Court's agenda is is not something that they have a unilateral jurisdiction over. Of course, they rely on the cases that are appealed up to them or the um, uh, certiorari, writs of certiorari, right, that come up to them. And they grant certiorari, they grant the uh, hearing, right, a um, to right these these cases right that are brought to them so they have some control over their agenda but it's not unilateral control like congress does and so they rely on issues to come up to them percolate up through right lower courts um, and so the Supreme Court's agenda in part, and I'm not sure if this is the part that you're talking about, but I, I think it's worth mentioning here. The Supreme Court's agenda is in part going to be determined by what the federal government right, is doing and what indeed state governments are doing. Right. So it's broadening over time right, into different issue areas is going to rely on cases dealing with statutory law or state law, right? So federal law or state law in those areas being percolated up to them through the lower courts and finally arriving on their agenda. And so what we see in the Supreme Court's agenda is that the mix of cases that they actually do end up hearing and indeed issuing decisions on uh, broadens as well, but it's a broadening that follows, right? The broadening of the federal government and the broadening of, we think, although we don't directly measure it, but it's got to be happening, the broadening of state agendas as well. So your data ends in the 1940s, and so you can't go back farther. But my my thought reading this has always been, what about the New Deal? So is the the first first question is is the New Deal 
great broadening version one or even you know two with the the progressive era um and if so, why did it not have similar consequences to to polarization and, and the, the other things that you demonstrate in this book? That's so if good, you don't go ahead, Michelle. So I, I think that I'll, I'll give this off to Brian after really quickly noting um, that if you look at data that's not included in the book, but um, the provisions of federal law that have been passed from the founding of the nation up to the near present. And you actually graph out the number of issues that those provisions are dealing with. What you see is that, yes, the the New Deal added some new issues, some really important new issues to the federal government agenda. But it doesn't actually represent a peak that is near as big, near as expansive as that that we find right in the 1970s. Um, and so that's just kind of some background information on the great broadening really is great. And it is, in fact, the greatest that we find, even looking at data that includes uh, lawmaking from the beginning of the nation. Um, so with that background, Brian, please. No, you're you're that's fantastic. She's the expert in this. And I hope her upcoming book will be read as as uh, much as I want ours to be read, because it'll be pathbreaking in trying to understand lawmaking since the dawn of the republic. What's the title of that? Let's just plug it. Uh, durable Law. Durable do you, Law. Do you have a date on it yet? No, not yet. It's to be... I'm sure she's busy at work on it right now. <laughs> she <laughs> better the, be yeah, busy at work. She, work on it. <laughs> she just got a, a high-powered um, appointment at a, at a very fine university uh, yes. department in particular. Uh, so, yeah, I think Michelle's basically right about this. Uh, when I think about it, the New Deal was focused on a limited number of, of our major topic areas. It expanded in social welfare. It was or The government was already involved, I suspect, in economic areas, but Michelle's the expert here from looking at the provisions of the law. Uh, and it did change the uh, the uh, outcomes there. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that we could measure them all. Certainly polarization doesn't seem to have been one of them. But I do think it changed the tenor of the debate. And certainly Republicans became very concerned about the expansion of big government in the 40s and 50s. Now, that probably got destabilized by the war. Uh, but I think we'd had that, that debate perhaps earlier, and we were rotating towards civil rights. If we're going to have a bigger federal government, why not? Why doesn't it get involved in civil rights? And a lot of the push of the civil rights activists in the 40s and 50s as black GIs came back home and came to the same old segregated system in the South, uh, we, we began to see these expansions occurring earlier in the Eisenhower administration. We see some of it there in things like bill introductions, very clear in bill introductions where you don't have to sit around and wait for a Southern committee chair to have a hearing on civil rights. You start um, introducing bills and putting some pressure on the system that way, and that shows up in our data. You know, something I, I, I might uh, add here, too. If we think about the progressive era as being round one of, of the Great Broadening and then round two, right, the New Deal, um, the one thing that I might add is that what we have at the, at the very beginning of the progressive era, right, we have Reconstruction, but the Civil War, right? So the Civil War is this great kind of um, external shock to the way that the uh, federal government acts. And then you get, right, the expansion. And then what happens shortly thereafter is you get massive polarization, right? And then we have the New Deal, right, the, the economic collapse, the New Deal leading into World War II. And eventually that works its way into also another great period of polarization. And so I wonder if there aren't some, some more cyclical trends uh, that, that might not be fruitful uh, areas of, of future research. Yeah, yeah, Agreed. 
So EJ and I were talking about this this morning about so you you see this cyclical pattern in the United States where where else would you expect to see this in the world? Yeah, well, we, there are so the poli- we have a comparative policy agendas project. Unfortunately, the data in most of these countries doesn't go back that are members of the comparative uh, uh, network. Uh, don't go back far enough to to look at things like uh, the great broadening in European and other countries. But Denmark does. And so I was able to take data from Denmark and show that the arc and plateaus happened there too. Happened later than the U.S., but there was a definite broadening of Danish government, broadening of Danish government in the 70s and 80s, and a plateau where the the issues passed into the system and got incorporated into bureaucracy and law. So I suspect it might be a more general pattern. We just don't know. Uh, we don't have the data, but where we do, it it looks promising. Well, I want to ask you to speculate on that just a little bit. So um, you you observe this this pattern later later in Denmark. So conceivably, if we had the data, or if somebody found out it, thought of a different research design to measure a similar thing. You could you would could go across maybe all European countries or, or 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 even all countries to see if that similar curve takes place at a particular time. Um, it seems to me like the book kind of offers two explanations for when that would be. One would be that it's essentially a force of nature that eventually government is going to expand into all policy areas, and that tends to take place in a big episodic shock. Uh, and the other is that it's forced onto the agenda by agents, by social movements, and by by people. Um, so would you expect? essentially there to be a, a point in a country's development where this occurs? Or would you expect it, it to be fairly random throughout countries and really determined by the individual agents in that country? Well, you're asking the classic historical agency problem, and that's a, that's a hard one to answer because it's hard to rule out the counterfactuals. I don't think anything happens what we used to call in sociology functionalists in a functionalist explanation. It's, there's a funct- a need for something to be uh, to, for a function to be fulfilled so that government does it. I, I, I'm one who believes that, that human agency matters. And I know uh, Sean and Michelle do. It's Sean because he wrote a book about an agent. Uh, you know, Gingrich. Now, can you imagine the great the end of the Great Broadening happening without Gingrich coming along? I, I don't know. I mean, you, you can't do that counterfactual. Similarly with, uh, with countries across the world, um, I suspect there are agents that are pushing this. I suspect in Europe, though, they won't be the same agents. I think the parties will be more involved in this. They'll capture the issues through the party structure, sometimes by the emergence of minority parties. So the, the, the nature in which that's filtered into the political system is going to probably differ quite a bit. Uh, but uh, and does it all happen? Of course, there's also a lot of copying, mimicking, and... and mm-hmm. uh, uh, learning from each other, that works. Well, let's try it. They're doing it there. Then you get pressure on the system that way. Um, I, I I'll give you an example of one issue like that fits this very well, and that's uh, the, the smoking uh, question. So it certainly started to be addressed in the United States and during the Great Broadening Period. It took a long time to bring it to fruition. But in the 2000s, I was traveling a great deal to Denmark, where I have an affiliation. And my colleagues in Denmark said, well, the one thing we won't have is smoking regulations the way you have in the United States, because it's, it's freedom. And I said, it'll come, uh, because you're going to get anti-smoking activists that catch on to the same sort of issue definitions that the United States activists did. And it worked, and it worked basically through uh, diffusion of, of the innovation of the arguments across state governments. 
what effect does the great broadening have on the party system? The party system specifically in the in in the, in the United States. So we've mentioned, I think maybe maybe we can actually go back a little bit and talk about how both parties participate in the great broadening. I think I think if you ask somebody who wasn't as well read in this, they they might say that the Democratic Party won big majorities in the '60s and controlled the presidency and controlled the House for a long period of time, and so they decided to expand the role of government. And Republicans probably weren't crazy about that. But you guys actually make a different argument about this period and a different argument about the period afterwards. Sean? Uh, right. So what we would say is that, that there's no doubt that the Democratic majorities are, are, are pushing the, uh, the, the agenda. But what we would say is that the Republicans were a little bit complicit in this, in this agenda expansion. Um, there might have been certain elements within the Republican Party, but not the Republican Party leadership. Um, and so while, while it could be that the Democrats are expanding in, in three or four or five different uh, areas of law, uh, the Republicans are doing it in one, two or three different areas of the law. Um, and, and both parties are expanding in a way that, that the other party doesn't necessarily disagree with. Um, it's just that that's not part of what they're about. Um, and so a, as the agenda is expanding, uh, the, the parties are, are taking uh, on more and more of these uh, different issues until I, I would argue that it comes to a breaking point in the late 1970s where, where Republicans decide that they want to be a majority party. And one of the ways that they can try and do this is become a confrontational party. So thanks to a reviewer who I won't mention, but I know who he is, uh, we had to uh, specify better what the pushback, this counter-mobilization uh, that took place. Um, uh, how did that happen and through what mechanisms? So we took a look at uh, some issues that the Republicans were successful, conservatives were successful in, uh, in implementing. And I want to mention one, and that's deregulation. Deregulation fits the pattern that Sean uh, described exactly. And if you take price deregulation, remember Back then, in the in the uh, 30s, we had a lot of, of regulatory price uh, structures put into place, uh, and there were there were two sorts of attacks uh, uh, intellectually on these systems of regulation. On the one hand, the economists said this is just not good market uh, strategies; it doesn't lead to efficient pricing. On the other hand, the public administration scholar said there's cozy governments here called subsystems. Uh, and uh, starting with uh, uh, an article by Samuel Huntington in 1950, uh, political scientists had decided these were pretty cozy subsystems. Deregulation in price areas was supported as a consequence both by Democrats and Republicans. Both Jerry Ford and uh, Jimmy Carter supported price deregulation. Uh, and as a consequence, it went easy. The difference had to do with safety regulation, where Ford wanted to deregulate and Carter didn't. So you began to get divisions on these issues for sure, uh, but there was a lot of cooperation uh, on these things. Second, the, most of our arguments during that period of time uh, were about solutions, not about the, whether government should be in that area, but whether or not, not what kind of solutions we should, should uh, structure. As I said earlier, Nixon was very interested in decentralizing and, um, and, and taking what he called the social service state, all those social workers out of government, and do transfer payments. So you'd have less government and uh, more ability of people not to vote for the Democratic Party in that case and more reason to vote for the Republican Party. Fascinating uh, story of, of agreement, but differences on solutions, not on what problems ought to be addressed. 
All right, so I'd like to begin wrapping up, uh, and I'll give you guys a second to think about the question while, while I, I vamp a little bit. So the question is going to be, what should people listening to this podcast read on these subjects uh, in addition to your book? Um, the book is, at, is from University of Chicago Press. It's coming out in June. It has 328 pages, and I love this. I think like 88 or something like that <laughs> figures. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we did lots of pictures. <laughs> yeah, so if it's you, a picture book. It's a, a figure every three and a half pages. Um, so given that, now that I've said that, uh, Michelle, why don't you go first? What, what should people read? Uh, so I might read Lowy from 1967, and the name of the book actually escapes me. I'm trying to find it right now. Um, is that the end of liberalism? I believe that is right. it, yes. It's in its um, second edition now. <laughs> excuse me? It's in its second edition now. It's more expensive, and, but it, the, the cover's prettier. <laughs> um, so I might also, um, just for, um, I might also want people to read some of Olsen. Um, so simply, right, to... Um, as a contrast, right? Because we we end up arguing, right, that um, the interest group, right, structure, right, that no network doesn't actually end up expanding until after the great broadening, whereas Olson, right, ends up arguing um, and did for a very long time seem to be quite persuasive in the literature that it's actually the interest group structure itself that is going to drive government getting involved in any new issue areas. And that's just not what we find. Um, and so I think it's a really interesting contrast to one of the major consequences of the great broadening in the book. Uh, so I would I would urge people to read that not only uh, because it's, it's classic, but uh, but also because of the contrast with our own argument. Sean? Uh, so I, <laughs> and, and it's rare that I don't take an opportunity to plug my own work here, but I'm going to plug uh, the work of my co-authors, right? So I think that Bumgartner and Jones, Agendas and Instability, right, That's is, cheating. is requ <laughs> required reading. I think, right, because it, it gives a lot of insight into a lot of the trends that we, we ultimately talk about. But but I think equally important, and, and perhaps more importantly, I hope Brian doesn't mind me suggesting this, is durable law. Uh, what, what what we do, I think, in this book is, is provide a, a pretty interesting narrative for what takes place in the the latter half of the 20th century. Um, I think what Michelle does is she puts this into a little bit uh, uh, broader context. Um, and so I think that uh, right, taking a look at, at Michelle's book when it comes out would be a, a great companion piece with this one. All right, Brian, give Thank me a book that's not by any of you. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Before you uh, do that, I, I'm, I'm going to uh, mention some, con uh, some uh, controversy in my own mind. And that was, were the dynamics we laid out in Agendas and Instability uh, simply a historical accident that took place during the Great Broadening? A lot of the breakup of subsystems happened then, and part of the dynamic we described is the intensity with which government involved, uh, got involved in those areas and the crack-up of those subsystems. So uh, uh, being self-critical, I said, well, we're wrong about that. And then, like manna from heaven, along comes Boeing and says, here's a captured subsystem, and it's getting the... Shot Snyder type uh, publicity that ought to. It's expanded into the uh, public sphere and into Congress. This is referring to the 737 Max controversy. That's right. Um, but let me suggest a couple of other uh, more recent things. I, I take a look at the work of my colleagues, uh, and uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, in their more recent work. Uh, I think if you took that, uh, the, the uh, books that they've done recently, a little more popular, and put them in the framework of the Great Broadening, you can learn a lot of things. 
I've learned a lot from Paul and Jacob themselves, and I, I certainly would, would think of some of the path dependency work that Paul's done. It shows up in punctuated equilibrium in the, in, the, um, uh, in the agendas and instability, but it's also an independent contribution in comparative politics that I think fits in and we address in the book. And I'd also cite the work of David Mayhew, who was a reviewer on this book and helped us quite a bit. David's work on divided government is one of those, I believe, and I'm going to ask him this, uh, I believe it was a bottom-up question. It looks like to me the divided government doesn't uh, differ from unified government as much as you guys think. And he went out and found the data to show it. Well, a lot of what we did here was bottom-up, and that is we looked at the trends. I saw these trends. This doesn't fit the story that we've been taught about American politics. Uh, and is it something broader? Ha. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> so I would suggest those, those books, and, and uh, in particular, I, I, I start with David's work on divided government. And just to amend, uh, to amend mine real quick, so also when I'm thinking of him, I'm thinking of his rise and decline of nations right. as being a good place. Yeah. Absolutely. Sean, Brian, Michelle, thank you for joining us. Christine, thank you for co-hosting. Our next episode will be reported from the great country of Denmark, where Brooke Shannon will be interviewing uh, Christopher Green-Peterson on his new book, Ish uh, Issue Competition. Uh, until then, thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been your Policy Agendas podcast. <laughs> <laughs>